Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This is the continuation and actually the conclusion of the Division Capsule series that I do every offseason for Real GM Radio. This one is on the Southwest Division with Rob Mahoney of The Ringer and Matt Moore of The Action Network. And we have a really great conversation going through these five teams, what they did in the offseason, what we expect for them this season, rookies to watch additions, trades, everything else. A lot of fun to be had here. And uh, after after everything, so probably around the 120 mark after everything gets tightened up, I talk a little bit about uh, my my friend Jonathan Charks. And if you want to listen to that, of course you can. So that's around an hour 20, something in that range. And this episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 promo code for actually a 100% welcome bonus for the time being. And episode runs, yeah, about an hour 20. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I always go love coming on with you guys. I always like to start these, you know, kind of we begin with the off-season review and then we'll move into the season to come. And it begins with a pretty straightforward question usually. And I, I think that's mostly the case for these five teams. We could start with Matt. Uh, of of the Southwest Division squads on, you know, like uh, let's focus more on like personnel in, personnel out, If unless you want to really talk about it like with New Orleans. Which teams do you think got better and which teams do you think got worse? So I don't actually think anybody got significantly better from an addition standpoint. Like the Pelicans get back Zion Williamson and they have internal improvement from Trey Murphy and obviously Herb Jones and more time with those guys. And obviously getting Zion back is the biggest part of that. Um, the Mavericks, I think, are going to be better than people are assuming after losing Brunson. I think Brunson will prove to be less of a loss than people are kind of conceptualizing. But I don't necessarily know that they got because like you do have to factor in the the raw loss of production and talent of Brunson. And I'll talk a lot about Wood in this podcast, but I think it's significant. But I'm not sure that they got like way better than last year. And the Grizzlies, I think, definitively got worse. Like, I just think that if you look at their offseason, they they definitely got worse given what they lost, the Jaron injury, which is going to impact them some amount of months. Um, the team's optimistic, I've heard. But if he's out until January, that wouldn't surprise me. And if that's the case, then that's missing Jaron for half the year. They lose Anthony Melton. They, um, you know, they keep Tyus Jones. Um, they lose Kyle Anderson. Uh, I don't think they got better at all. Um, San Antonio deliberately got worse to tank. And then Houston adds Jabari Smith, which is obviously, I think, a step up. But other than that, not all, like they're counting on internal improvement and having just done like a deep dive on them for my first like win totals guide. Not, not, not going to get a lot better next year. There's a long way to go. So this division, I think, is very, is very interesting because I think it's the margins are tight. Um, and I think that the big, the big differential is that Memphis, I think, takes a step backwards and that opens up a three way race with Zion coming back. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally on the same page in terms of most of these teams are, are not meaningfully better. I think if you had to pick the team that's going to get the most, that's going to improve the most by talent, not including injury, it might still be the Pelicans just because they didn't really lose anybody. And so maybe if you get like Dyson Daniels hitting, then that's a meaningful thing. But everyone else lost some pretty important player to varying degrees, right? Like maybe Kyle Anderson on the lower end of that spectrum, DeJounte Murray on the high end of that spectrum, but they're all having things they're having to replace. I think the Pelicans are, are in a pretty plush spot of we're just kind of adding on to what was already an impressive back half of last season with getting Zion back, with getting a couple young guys in. Maybe there's something there in terms of like year over year talent base. 
Right. And thinking about these five teams in terms of like kind of the passage of time is is notable as well. I mean, you have a couple of really young teams here and like that's another component of this for Memphis. Like I think Memphis's talent is, is downgraded. I want to talk about a number of those things, but like John Morant's going to be a year older. Like they don't really have a lot of old, old guys on the team. You know, like, well, Stephen, Stephen Adams maybe takes a slight step back. I, I'm interested in what, you know, and they obviously lost Kyle Anderson, who you would probably put on the, the wrong side of the age curve though he would have he would have helped them and so you have that and then you have teams like the Rockets where they're you know they're that arsenal of rookie last year's rookies now become sophomores and there's usually a step forward that comes there but they're still going to be overwhelmingly relying on young players and deliberately so and there's nothing wrong with that and then as Matt talked about San Antonio deliberately taking a step back which I fully support it's just that that's what they chose to do and I personally because you think about all of these different moves that and decisions that teams make and a lot of them are done by some version of like necessity or vision and that's why to me the D'Anthony Melton trade is one of the most fascinating decisions that any of these five teams made in the offseason because they traded Melton for I guess Danny Green's now partially guaranteed contract and the 23rd pick in the draft which they eventually used on David Roddy and this was not a circumstance of Memphis needing to clear some salary to avoid the luxury tax or reduce their tax bill or something else. This was Memphis deciding that they would rather have the 23rd pick than DeAnthony Melton. And we just don't see choices like that very often. Yeah, I think I, I think some of that is probably baked into the decision to pay Tyus, right? Like, I think they, they, they may not be ducking the luxury tax, but I think they're managing salary. I think they're especially managing long-term salary, right, as extensions are going to kick in for the key guys. I think that they're looking like they've tried to very, very much ahead of the curve. Um, it's interesting just from the perspective of they didn't, necessarily like uh, there was a lot of presumption around memphis that they were going to quote consolidate this season this offseason that they were going to look to be like okay you know how can we get a major upgrade to go with this team this team is already really good was a two seed you know had a shot versus the warriors i don't think that jaw necessarily was the the factor in them losing that series that they were already behind the eight ball but like had a shot versus the warriors competed with the warriors um and so they were they were close and so the idea was like who can they go get to kind of be like the upgrade and that opportunity i don't think just i don't think it presented itself i don't think there was an upgrade out there for them and so you know they lose melton which was one of the kind of the chips in there but he was going to be facing an extension in in uh, coming time and so at, at getting ahead of that question mark and basically saying like, all right, we just want to keep Tyus. Like, let's just keep Tyus and getting him and, and re-signing him. That was a decision to make. And like, look, there's a lot of optimism about Kenny Chandler and LaRavia and, and, you know, Roddy. I think Roddy's workouts were not great, but I don't know. That doesn't that affects your draft stock more than it does about what, what kind of NBA player you'll be. So I think that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff with, with Memphis to be optimistic about still. It's just that I think that they wanted to make their decisions. And honestly, from what I heard, like they may have wanted to make more changes and those opportunities just didn't present themselves because the market was kind of um, it was a little stagnated by not only the KD situation, but it just wasn't necessarily a great summer to be a buyer. That distinction, I think, is is really important because you can see a scenario a year or two from now when people are writing glowing accounts of what the Grizzlies are doing about how like they stood fast in this moment and they didn't make their moves. It's not for lack of want to do it. Uh, I, I'm totally on the same page with you, Matt, in terms of like the opportunities of those things just weren't there. This is still a roster that does 
scream consolidation that does scream like how are you going to pay all of these guys at the same time while also continuing to improve your roster you can just see how they're going to be butting up against the wall with that stuff and so it feels like a matter of time in a lot of ways and that's part of what makes jaron jackson's injury so painful is you would love to see them get a clearer picture of how all these pieces fit together and which of which ones are going to end up being long-term fixtures which ones are going to be you know more more candidates for trade i don't know that we're going to get a clean look at that beyond what we already have uh at least in at least in the short term of this season and so you hope they can figure something out pretty quickly but they're going to be a good team they're obviously going to be in the mix maybe not quite as good as last year but i think they you know they gave themselves a lot of buffer to play with between the peaks of uh, like the absolute heights of their performance last year to you know where they are now is still still a very respectable outcome for a season still definitely going to be you know a playoff caliber team a dangerous team in a lot of ways just one that has to figure some stuff out i really like the point about opportunity because yeah i had brought up you know that memphis this was a great opportunity for them to add ideally either the second or third best player on the on like the kind of the peak version of this team you know so theoretically let's say it's Ja and jaron and then player x who is better than anybody else that they currently have for that feature. And the w- one big problem that Zach Lyman faced was most of those players who make sense with their timeline and the salary structure and all that weren't available. And, you know, so I, I you know, for me, the dream had been Jalen Brown. A, Jalen Brown probably too good for the assets that Memphis had. And B, not, you know, not available for somebody apparently reportedly other than Kevin Durant. And, and so there aren't that many players who fit that bill. And Memphis has the benefit that they could go in a lot of different positional groupings. I mean, you probably don't want a one or a two because of John Desmond Bain, and then you can play Jaron Jackson next to a bunch of a bunch of different players. My big question with Memphis on and uh, Rob talked about how this is going to age is. I understand the idea of like, you know, taking these draft picks and there is the risk that once you drive that car off the lot that they become less valuable unless they really hit. And if they hit, then you're great. And that is, you know, now you have Ravia and Roddy and Kennedy Chandler who are players on your roster and who are now going to become evaluatable players instead of just being draft picks. And not only the idea of like, what are they in a trade? I think that's in many ways less important than what are they to the Grizzlies now and moving forward? Because if, if, one or more of those guys turns into a starting caliber player, if one or more of them turns into a rotation caliber player within the next two years, that's going to help a lot. You know, the, the idea in in Summer League, I was watching Kennedy Chandler and thinking like, oh, this might be the eventual Tyus Jones replacement. And he could be more than that in time. But Kennedy Chandler, like kind of capable guard, had some things that I really liked about him. And I was a little less enthused with LaRavia and Roddy, but it was the first time I'd seen them. It can sometimes be a weird setting. So there's some pressure now we've seen Memphis like kind of bet on their evaluation bet on their player development and now they're they're gonna have to start converting those things because one criticism that I have of of the draft that they had but also you could piece this together with a couple other guys like still having Dylan Brooks around we'll see if he gets an extension is I think that Memphis has they've made some commitments to players that I think are good basketball players unambiguously but have some flaws that make them better 82 game players than 16 and Memphis earned their way into bigger conversations last year because of how great they were. And so now I'm evaluating their players on a different standard, and I want to see more from them to be enthused about it. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting just because their drafts have been so dynamite, and then they were almost universally praised after. This is the first one I thought that was interesting from a quote unquote draft expert perspective, where both people were like, I "Don't don't love what they did there. Don't don't love that they the, the picks that they made, you know." And then you you combine that with last year um, making the trade of Valanciunas for Steven Adams and Bledsoe. And, you know, then, you know, Valanciunas was so good for them. And then that worked out because Adams paired perfectly with Ja, you know, and they let Bledsoe go. And they guys, they moved up to get Zaire Williams. And then they're banging a lot on Zaire. I think that's like an interesting question mark. And one of the questions that you've got on here is like the breakout players. And like it better be Zaire for, for Memphis. <laughs> like they tried very hard to kind of uh, make Zaire happen last year. Like, all right, let's start him and let's play him in playoff games. And, you know, there were times when I was underwhelmed and kind of like, I don't know if he's ready yet. I don't think he's really here yet. Um, and there are times when he, he showed pretty well. But that to me is like such a big component here is they seem to have a lot of confidence in what Zaire Williams is going to be um, more so than the consensus and you know their draft evaluation and talent evaluation has been sound so there's a level to which you want to trust them but from an outside perspective I think you do wind up with like this uh, this assessment that they're uh, they're taking risks that are further beyond the consensus than usual. I was kind of into the Zaire Williams thing though. I mean, what, what were your hangups with him, Matt? Um, just mostly that putting him with a unit that's trying to win now, it seemed very often like he was very, it, it was one of those things where it was, there was a, a wildness to it and also like a vacillation between hyper aggression and then kind of fading into the background. And that's like, that's hard for a rookie, right? To know like where your standing is when you're on a, a court with these guys that are competing at that kind of level that have a couple of years under their belt, not considerably older, but a few years older. And so, you know, for me, it was, it was more of like, he would have these moments where he would showcase like incredible athleticism or, you know, a great skill set. Like the talent I think is there. It's more about just like, I don't necessarily know that his development, like he, I was just like, mm, not quite ripe yet. That that's, that's more about where I'm at instead of questioning whether or not he's going to be able to be that kind of component for them. Totally. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no question. He wasn't fully ready for everything they were asking him to do even if sometimes just what they're asking him to do was chill in the corner make smart cuts and defend like even that stuff is is pretty taxing for a young player and like how you have to process the game has to be advanced to play on a team like that uh but i think we've seen enough outlines of that player like the young guy who shows flashes who clearly isn't ready yet but is like precocious in just the right ways that gives you some hope and so may- maybe i'm closer to the grizzlies on that than, than some other people are but like i'm i'm pretty excited about his next few seasons and hopefully he can pop this year maybe maybe it's not though maybe maybe it takes another year or two for him to really get his feet under him with Zaire, he also potentially could be the there's a, a kind of a role that I've been becoming more obsessed with. And Job Rand is a great reason for this to exist, which is basically guy who can defend point guards, but is bigger than point guards, because if they can navigate screens well and can do everything else, Dylan Brooks, of course, has done this a lot for the Grizzlies as well. And Desmond Bain has at times, too, because you don't in the modern NBA, you don't want your primary ball handler, whether that guy is six foot two or six foot eight to guard the other team's lead guy either because a they're generally bad at it Jean Morant importantly among that but also because it's too taxing you know like that's it's just a lot to ask and you know that there were a couple of times when like LeBron did it with those heat teams and other things and so if Zaire can step into that role where he's you know lower usage offensive player unless he really takes a step forward but can make life easier on this Grizzlies backcourt defensively that is a, a really potentially valuable thing and also also could 
theoretically, like you could say in kind of like a dream scenario for Memphis, answer some of my Dylan Brooks questions where you fill it with a very different physically player, but someone who can do some of those things. Yeah, the Dylan Brooks thing is the other kind of element to talk about with Memphis, just from the perspective of um, that, you know, there's there's a little bit of like, oh, Dylan's still here with everyone, I think, to <laughs> Memphis, you know, because it's I think it's tough just because Dylan was, was there for the entire rebuild and has had good games and has had important moments and has had um, good games and, and good seasons, et cetera. But especially when you look at what Desmond Bain was able to accomplish last year and you're just like, oh, boy, don't 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 know if I want Dylan to take take shots from from Desmond. That's not a thing that anybody should want. And so I think that plays kind of a part in this. And, and honestly, I think there's just going to be a consensus of I honestly just think that, that a lot of analysts are going to downgrade. Memphis based purely on on Dylan still being on the team, which I don't necessarily think is is fair in in totality. Um, and I think it's something that he can probably kind of prove is wrong. But but it's also hard to argue with given the the disastrous times that we've seen. Like when Dylan's bad, he's catastrophic, and that I think does influence the way that we look at the team. All I really aspire to in, in my career is being that guy who lingers on longer than anyone <laughs> necessarily wants him to or needs. Like oh, I guess I guess Rob. Rob's still here. Still here. Still doing this. All right. I want to be the Dylan Brooks, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, someone someone who didn't linger on their Southwest team is Jalen Brunson. And I'll start with Rob with you. Like, I mean, we're doing this more. This is on the division. So I think we, we could talk about it from Brunson's perspective as well. But for Dallas, it's... It's a complicated thing to navigate because you not only have it's an unrestricted free agent, so it isn't even like necessarily if you had matched their offer that if you had equaled it, not matched because that gets complicated with the restricted rights, which don't come into play here. But if you if you equaled the Knicks offer, would he have even taken it? Would he have preferred to go to New York and everything else like that? But it's still an ex- a talented player, a player who helped you walking out the door, and you get nothing for it. Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty painful, not necessarily in the aggregate. Like I think at the end of the season you're going to look back and the Mavs are still going to be a good team they're still going to be pretty dangerous they obviously still have Luka so that that puts them in a class just on that alone but on the night-to-night basis the Spencer Dinwiddie experience is about to be like front and center in a way that is not always ideal you know I think he had some amazing moments for the Mavs even even in the playoffs like hit some incredible huge shots that they absolutely needed but like on a 48 minute basis can be a really up and down player a really up and down creator you know they obviously get a lot more size starting Dinwiddie instead of Brunson. I think that's going to help them a little bit in the same vein of, that we're talking about as far as like who guards point guards, like how you manage the defensive matchups. Now they have a lot more options with the length between Dinwiddie and Dorian Finney-Smith and Reggie Bullock in particular. Like that gives you some stuff to play with defensively, but I don't know. I feel like they're going to miss Brunson a lot. I think he was he was solid for them in a way that the people who weren't watching the Mavs on a nightly basis may not have fully clocked. And then certainly when Luka has been out, the idea of having both Brunson and Dinwiddie as kind of a dual safety net is great. And now when it's just Dinwiddie, I start to get a little bit nervous about about kind of where their offense can be in those situations, whether it's, you know, Luca out with injury, whether it's him just going to the bench with his normal rotation. There's a little something in that offense that feels feels a little bit destabilized without Brunson there. And that's where you you have to hope that the ebbs and flows of Tim Hardaway Jr. help you. I mean, that's not something I would want to be writing on personally or, or kind of the internal improvement of some of these guys, although it's not necessarily the youngest roster. And then whatever it is that Christian Wood is going to be doing for the Mavericks, that that is like enough to solidify and elevate them. But it's a they're in kind of a weird spot where I think they're starting lineup. Like this is something we should probably get into on its own with Christian Wood kind of as an off 
offshoot of the Brunson conversation. You know, Tim Cato of The Athletic reported that all signs right now are pointing to Christian Wood coming off the bench, which is a really interesting utilization of him and probably not what he was quite expecting when he came to the Mavericks. But it does shift those variables around in an interesting way where it's like, okay, now if you're getting Christian Wood scoring off the bench, maybe there is something to kind of offset what you're getting when, sorry, what you're not getting when Luca's not out there. Yeah, I think um, I'm the way I've kind of started to think about the Mavericks offseason when I took a step back and what I think it'll probably what I'm kind of expecting it to become is I just think this was uh, such a lean in to Harden Luca where the beginning of the season last year they they openly talked about this about like look we can't expect Luca to do everything and like this is a team and like let's try Kristaps Porzingis post-ups and you know let's get some isolations for Reggie Bullock and things like this and then it was like um you know we should probably just give the ball to Luca and then get out of the way that's that's probably what we should do and Brunson was great the entire year and his, his pick and roll numbers are great and all these types of things and he, he was like he was awesome for the Mavericks last year like I liked him the year before he was awesome last year he was so pivotal for the success the reason I have a lot of confidence in their ability to take a step forward uh record wise and be able to hold up is one like when we look at the overall season the big reason why they won was um I don't know how else to put this an inexplicable improvement in defense like no one really I, I asked Mavericks fans like why are you guys better at defense this year because I can't figure it out and they're like we have no idea can't can't no scheme change <laughs> no real personnel change just the opponent just missed more shots their offensive rating last year topped out at 14th over at dunks and threes schedule adjusted so they weren't necessarily this great offensive team anyway and Brunson's not helping you on defense right and the counter to that is like well Christian Wood's definitely not helping you on defense um I have a lot of ifs with Christian Wood in that what I've seen from Wood is in Detroit Detroit and then this season with Houston when you tell when you are not openly telling him or but telling him basically hey we're tanking just so you heads up like we don't really want to win these games then Christian Wood is more than happy to match that with with an effort that is appropriate for a tanking team he is more than happy to give that but when you gave him James Harden and then later John Wall and for a very brief second Victor Oladipo actually the engagement level was pretty high and effort on defense makes up for a lot so I think if they're able to figure out that hey we're going to need Christian Wood in this combo which they should immediately and send JaVale McGee to the bench I don't know why they made that signing that was the worst signing of the offseason to me was JaVale McGee for three years 20 million dollars Wood to me presents when I, when like I watch all this Houston tape it's crazy because he was such a he was half-assing it last year he was not engaged he was pretty toxic everyone hated him and yet like I was able to when I did the, the Rockets analysis I was like this is pretty clearly the best player on the team by yep. a, a wide margin um it can shoot from the outside and pick and pop situations it finally gives luca a dynamic athletic role man which he hasn't really had because like dwight powell is has always been like you know he's better than you think christian wood is actually good versus just better than you think like he can roll he can pop he can do these things the defense may take a step back but so much of dallas's defense is predicated on putting pressure on you on the edge anyway with their perimeter defenders that i think there's a way to to make this work. I don't understand bringing him off the bench. If that doesn't happen, I'll feel a lot better about it. I think this can work out to where it's, it's, I, I want to be clear. I don't 
think it's like you know you didn't have to swap Brunson for Wood. You could have had both of them if you went the the money route, which I don't necessarily think that they should have. But if you chosen not to lose him for nothing, you could have had both. But as it stands, I think losing Brunson, adding Wood with a step up from Luca in terms of it looks like he's going to be in shape and he's just going to have the ball so much more. Rob's right that when Luca's not on the court for being out or on the bench, I think it's going to be worse than ever. But I think probably the maximization of Luca's minutes, which is what they're going for, is probably going to work out to be a, a net positive for them. I can see them being better record-wise, even if they don't necessarily feel like that much of a better team. And I think this makes them a worse playoff team, but potentially a better regular season team. Yeah, I agree with a lot of that. And what made Dallas's offseason so bewildering to me is that I thought it was pretty apparent that when they were at their best, like if we want to say specifically Game 7 of the Sun Series, but also like throughout against the, the best times against the Warriors and even against the Jazz, I thought it was when they switched a lot on defense and they had Luka ideally with another creator, but with a lot of spacing around him. Like the spacing was the most important thing. And you can argue, and I would, that Christian Wood fits into that concept. He's, you know, I think he can be a better switch defender than he's been. And hopefully the challenge of being on a team that is actually relevant will motivate him. We will have to see. But then, you know, that's a frustration for me with the JaVale thing. It's like, it, and, and with Dwight Powell, it's like, okay, these are capable basketball players, but they don't, they don't do the things that make you your best. And especially they're not versatile offensively. They're very good at what they do offensively. And that's a, it, it's a frustration because that, you've talked about like there isn't that much that was different for Dallas. One thing that stuck out to me was having both Dorian Finney-Smith and Reggie Bullock on the perimeter defensively. That gave them a lot of more ability to pressure on the edge. And there aren't that many players like that that exist. And I don't know that using the mid-level would have yielded another one of those. I mean, maybe you could have gotten somebody like Daniel House who has his own stuff, but he was interested interested in Philly, it certainly appears. But to basically have all of these resources, and, you know, Jaden Hardy at 37, A, a rookie's not going to help you in their first year, especially in the second round, but be like, but using the mid-level, you know, the stuff they did in trades, or, you know, moving stuff around, and basically, other than Wood, not adding anybody who, who, like, you can just imagine, oh, they make sense as another option within that concept, was just so strange to me. Yeah, I feel like the Mavs did get caught a little bit in the space that a lot of teams in their position do these teams that are that are young and still kind of coming into their own and finding who they're going to be as a competitive entity over the you know whatever their lifespan is which is they get to this point where the players who are determining their identity are also the players you would probably want to upgrade over and so it's like if you're going to replace Dorian Finney-Smith for example in the starting lineup or Reggie Bullock in the starting lineup as you mentioned Danny those are crucial players to to what they are able to do to the pressure they're able to apply and once you start Start swapping those kinds of guys out for potential replacements unless those replacements are like star level contributors sometimes you're giving up like a little too much of your soul for a marginal improvement in like points per game or, or shot creation you know on the edges in ways that, that aren't really meaningful to you and so that's why i think when the christian wood deal happened the idea that like oh you're just gonna plug him in for dwight powell who's you know a spot starter not a big minutes guy not like a meaningful member of the rotation and can get flexed out of a 
playoff series. If you're upgrading that guy with Christian Wood, then let's say the the highly motivated version of Christian Wood that Matt talked about, you know, we're, we're whispering sweet affirmations into his ear all season long, and he's the best version of himself, then that's like an exciting possibility. But then once you start jumbling this thing up and Wood's coming off the bench, and as we've talked about the JaVale part of this, who it's like, on the one hand, starting JaVale McGee over Christian Wood helps you maintain the identity that you've created. But on the other hand, he's JaVale McGee and everything that comes with that. And you're now bringing this other talented player off your bench just because it's a it's a little bit messy. It's a little bit messier than I think I would like for a team that's coming off of a conference finals appearance and that seemed to have a lot of a lot of good momentum and just in terms of like what they were building together. And now to, to have to rejigger your offense to deal with Brunson's loss, to reconceptualize how your rotation is going to work with bringing in Wood in this kind of capacity, it, it raises a lot of questions for sure. Not necessarily in a way that's going to tank them in the regular season, because I agree. Like they, they could well win more than 52 games this season. Like I would not be shocked by that result at all but they're definitely putting themselves in a position where they have to answer these things when they could have just been kind of coasting off the momentum they had created and trying to further it a little bit so much of this for me is just like simply last year was kind of baffling and how they made this big step forward and again it was that defense that nobody's really able to be like oh that's why like dorian finney smith went from being like a you know who's actually a pretty good defender dorian finney smith to being like you know who's actually a defensive player of the year candidate dorian finney smith that's a big (laughs) jump um and so when you look at kind of like the overall offense like this to me is the big thing is that they succeeded last year despite a lot of reasons why they shouldn't have and like Luca topped out last year on synergy for the entire season at 46 percentile obviously the last three months when he was an MVP candidate he was much 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 higher but he came into into camp out of shape again struggled early again and they kind of found ways to get through that early stretch until Luca became Luca again. If you anticipate that, that Luca is basically, all right, he's gotten serious. This is probably the season where he's, you know, he's a year older. Plus, even if he hasn't gotten serious, he's got Euro basket in September. He doesn't have time to get fat. So if you factor that in. Matt, I, no, Matt, there's I, I, always time to get fat. <laughs> and so don't have to tell me that. So if we look at that at, at kind of like those factors, I just think that there's like this very good chance that Luca is finally the becomes he's been put at this top tier already because of his moments and his flashes and his stretches. But I think he, the, this is a, a I just did a, a big MVP preview over at my podcast buckets. It talks about betting and I've already bet Luca to win MVP just because to me, this lines up where the Mavs are like, well, we're going to need more from Luca. And it's like, this is the plan is that it's any sort of downturn should be made up by Luca Doncic, people that can roll to the rim and shooters. They have all three of those. Okay, the offense is probably going to be great. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I will say kind of online with what Rob said, I'm much more interested in the Mavs regular season this year than I expected to be. Like that is one yeah. consequence of this and how, I mean, Christian Wood also, I mean, I've been passionate about Christian Wood for a number of years now. I don't want to delve into it too deeply, but how do you guys feel about the Zion Williamson extension from his perspective and from New Orleans perspective? You know, I don't, <laughs> I think there's, there's kind of a level to which some of these decisions I think are more debatable in the abstract or for people that don't have to actually make them than they are for those involved. 
right? Where it's like, yeah, of course we're extending Zion Williamson. He's Zion, like, you know, we tanked and we got this pick. We got the, we, we lucked out with the number one pick in the lottery and we got what is considered to be one of the transcendent talents. And I think there's, there is kind of this level of, of, yeah, look, if he's one of these guys that's always injured, then that's our lot in life. Like, that's just how, that's how it goes sometimes. Sometimes you get Sam Bowie. Like, you're, that's, you're, that's you're in how the Zion Williamson business no matter what. Yeah. And with what he showed when he was healthy, you make these decisions based off of that because you know moving on would not make you better and it would also if that person winds up being healthy that costs you your job because you're the person that was like no thanks to the zion williamson thing and given all we've heard about the the zion williamson narrative has been interesting to see from afar and, and read clips and talk to people because the evolution has gone from oh man he's just like he's a beast it's gonna be so great to you know kind of a kind of malcontent wasn't happy at duke these kind of things like it man there's a lot of word that he doesn't like new orleans might try and force his way out to you know that might just be how he is where he's never really seems happy because he was kind of made some noise in high school and kind of made some noise at duke but ultimately he was there um and now to like well look i think he, he realizes where he's at i don't know that zion williamson finishes this contract in new orleans i don't i don't i don't know that anybody finishes any contract anywhere in the nba at this point except bradley beal if he wants to except bradley beal if he wants to <laughs> um but I do think that you make the decision based off of sometimes you have to make it based off of if the guy's talent is at a certain level, you accept the the risks, which are immense with Zion. And that's what they've chosen. And I have a hard time blaming them. I don't envy being in their position. I don't think it's like, oh, it's going to be fine. But I also am just like, look, you, you make the, the best decision you can with the information in front of you. And that's where they went. And ultimately, the talent validates the decision to go in long term for him. Yeah, I also have a hard time just looking at a team extending what looks like one of the best basketball players in the world to what we've seen so far and not calling that a win. Like, I, I know the risks. I know everything that Matt just laid out. Like, all of that stuff is totally realistic and you have to game plan for it and you have to work in, you know, conditions into the contract, protections, guarantees to varying degrees that you can. But the Pelicans, they're keeping Zion Williamson for now, a guy who just months ago, people are kind of whispering around the NBA, like, should New Orleans kick the tires on a preemptive trade involving this guy just in case he wants to leave, just in case the health stuff is the worst case scenario or, or a, you know, a bottom 25% scenario. I, I think this is look, this is feeling and looking much better than it did a couple of months ago. And so I, I'm totally fine with what they did. I'm totally fine with that situation. I'm really excited about what the Pelicans could potentially be. And Matt's right. Like when you're in a position running these teams, you have to take a chance on this kind of thing hitting. Like you have to believe that there's some reality to what New Orleans showed in the playoffs last season and over the back back you know stretch of games of last season and that there's a reality to what Zion has showed and if those two things fuse together in the right way that is that is a transformational enterprise and so to give up on that because of whatever it is you're hearing or whatever it is you're worried about until that stuff becomes concrete and real I'm gonna try to address it as best I can slash pretend it doesn't exist and <laughs> keep this train moving because I think there's a lot to be happy about there for sure and one thing that I'll throw on top of all that, I think what made this decision, it was, I think it should have been easy in the first place for New Orleans, but what made it even easier for David Griffin was the Pelicans had a lot of success last year without him. And so the the scenario of what
what if things go really badly for Zion Williamson is more palatable now than it was a year ago because Ingram took a step forward. They got these huge contributions from a couple of their rookies. And then I think we'll see more Trey Murphy this year. I really like him. So I, I'm, and I, I'm not exactly sure how and why all of that happened. But yeah, I think that there, there's a lot there to be positive about, and you're not as reliant. You're in the Zion Williamson business, and I mean, I think he fundamentally, if he's available, fundamentally transforms this team, could push them to different levels. I'm extremely enthusiastic about what they could be, depending on how all this shakes out. But now you go with that, and I, th- I thought Willie Green had a good first year as a coach there. We have a foundation that we can build on, and then whatever we get from Zion over these next couple years is, it's more of a bonus than it is a piece piece of the like a necessary firmament for the foundation yeah and i think there's a lot to be excited about with the pelicans i think I have some questions about the stability of certain players game to game, and that still includes Brandon Ingram to a certain degree. Um, it still includes CJ McCollum to a certain degree, whose McCollum's on-off advanced stuff wasn't doesn't blow your mind compared to some of the other guys. And, and almost um, never has, right, if memory serves. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the skill is obviously there. It's like CJ's very useful for specific situational needs. I think that matters. And Ingram, when he's good, is great. He's he's amazing when he's, gr- when he's good. And so like that sets you up pretty well uh, it's gonna be interesting to see the zion valanciunas pairing and how that looks and how it works it could work great and if it does like that's a very to me that's an exciting pairing can't be higher on herb jones i just i can't i cannot be i watched all of his steals from the season and i just i i cannot get over how amazing he is defensively i've never i don't know that i've ever seen a player this young be that good um defensively ever ev- ever i don't use that lightly uh, it's insane how good he is defensively you know, I think when you look at some of the other guys, Trey Murphy, like they have so many young guys that are exciting. And then you add that on to what you know you're getting with Ingram and McCollum and these types of things. And you get a real opportunity. This team should be really good. If Zion is even anywhere around the court, he should be really, really, really good. So um, I think there's a lot there. One of the best things about the Pelicans, they have a lot of pathways to success. And I think that that matters. I love the idea, though, that there's like a video of Herb Jones steals like floating around the dark web, radicalizing people. You know, just really pulling them into the cult with us. Yes, it's, it's on the dark webs. I'm just like surfing for basketball, for, for basketball steel <laughs> As one clips. does. As one does. Totally normal thing for me to do in, in August. I, I fully embrace it. Plenty more with Rob Mahoney and Matt Moore to come. But first, message from betonline.ag. Football is back and BetOnline is your number one source for all your football betting needs and sports information this season. Find all the latest football odds, news, and game matchups, including this week's games. BetOnline is your continued source for all your wagering information, including live betting, free contests, and live scores. It's always the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports and events, including Major League Baseball, MMA, tennis, boxing, and even golf. So head to BetOnline.ag and use the CLNS50 promo code to receive your 100% welcome bonus with your first deposit. So make sure to use that promo code CLNS50 to receive your reward at BetOnline, where the game starts. 
And the other huge transaction that we haven't talked at all about, and I think part of it is because the conversation from San Antonio's perspective is not exactly complicated, is their decision to trade DeJounte Murray. And DeJounte Murray, who made the All-Star game this year, and they got three first-round picks, two unprotected from the Hawks. One is that weird protected Charlotte pick that's that's been bouncing around. It was included in the Cam Reddish deal. And but so it's it's obviously important. I mean, you you're you trade your best young player and you in who has two more years under contract to somebody else and has ripple effects throughout the league, but also because of what it does to kind of clarify things from San Antonio's perspective. Yeah, this was the move that most stood out to me on magnitude, on reasoning, on just like interest level of anything that happened in the Southwest over the offseason. And some of that is because I think with DeJounte Murray, we zero in on the Hawks side on is this worth it for them? Is this the right time for them? How do we like the fit with Trey Young and the core that they have there? And I honestly like how he fits into what they do. And I'm I'm understanding of why they would give up as much for, for this player at this particular time and the pressures of that organization and all of that. But I think from the Spurs side, there's been a lot of focus on this is a, a very nice sell high move to me. And I think to a lot of people, and you guys feel free to disagree if you think that, that there was an opportunity to get more for DeJounte Murray. But I think this is about as good as a good return as you're going to get for that kind of player. My question is like, is that sell high return worth the four or five years of idling it took to get here? Like, is, it, was this really the best use of the Spurs time over the last half decade, basically, when they could have been moving in this position sooner or in this in this direction sooner? They could have been doing different kinds of things. I know they wanted to kick the tires and fully investigate and see like what the Lonnie Walkers of the world were going to be to see, you know, what DeJounte for that matter could become. But it does feel like a great return, just one that has come so late that it's going to just trap them in another four or five years of, in this case, not being a middling team, but being just kind of a probably a pretty bad one for a while. Yeah, I think I think they had a lot of of hope in Dejounte. I think the the ending of the Demar Lamarcus Aldridge was maybe they waited too long on that. I think maybe a season too long to pull the plug there. Yeah. But they were honestly a lot of it was like they liked Derozan, like they liked Demar, and I think Pop liked coaching him, and I think that they enjoyed having him around. And you know, ultimately, Demar left in free agency instead of um, these kind of things. And so I think they really did. That summer before DeJounte had the knee injury, he was hitting threes and everyone was like, this may be like the next guy. Like there was so much hype about him. And so I think there was like a real we might have something here, you know, and Derek White was coming off of that playoff series where he was uh, just in flames versus the Nuggets. Like there were these things kind of lining up where it was like if DeJounte makes a leap and Derek White could be that guy, we might really have something. And now, like a couple of years later, we look at it and go, oh, you know, DeJounte wasn't an all star and this three point shot never really like came to high levels. And Derek White kind of tapped out like now he's the sixth man, maybe now seventh man on the Celtics. These things really the, your perception of these guys changed rat you know drastically um the other thing and i just don't know how else to i don't know how to avoid it is they traded two clutch clients i that's not that's not nothing to me they still have some guys i think there's one major player that that's still is a clutch client but given if you paid attention to the anthony davis debacle and you go like what does that have to do with the spurs dell dumps came out of the spurs tree and the spurs were not not subtle about criticizing how that situation went down and so a couple of years later when 
two clutch clients leave in the same off season that did not escape my notice. I think that there's a lot of this. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with Rob that maybe they waited too long from a championship perspective. I also do just genuinely think that a lot of this is they were trying to find like what the direction is and trying to see like, can we find a way to be the team that we want to be internally? And then they finally were like, no, there's, there's not a path here we're going to have to actually go for a full 1997 tank to get back and get a player that we can build around. My uh, my eyebrows are sufficiently raised at, at the clutch side of this conversation, which I think is very interesting. But I also want to amend for the record, Matthew Moore, DeJounte Murray, second all-star replacement in the 2022 all-star game. So put some respect on his name. The man Sorry. did technically, Sorry. By, by hook or by crook, become an all-star. That's true. He is. He isn't. And, and that honestly, that does matter. Like he is an all-star that matters there there is also i think a lesson here that if you ever have a young player that you like but don't think is your cornerstone if they ever make an all-star game trade them as soon as you can after that point just because there is there is a a boost that comes to a player's trade value in that juncture and i think that the the Spurs did really benefit. And I agree with Rob's conception framing that the Spurs waiting as long as they did. I mean, they had three years in a row where they won in the low 30s, one of those being a COVID shortened season, but they would have probably won in the mid 30s that year instead of in the low 30s. Um, So that is not the most fun place to be. It, It didn't necessarily yield the most fruit from a draft perspective. And something San Antonio is going to have to reconcile. And this is, this will come up with the Houston Rockets as well, though they're at a different phase in this potentially similar process is what is a sufficient level of progress to shift your approach to if you want to think about it push the accelerator and so for the Spurs they have some real success they have they have some players on their team that I think can be a part of a successful squad for the Spurs or someone else and Jakob Pertl's one of those Keldon Johnson who got an extension I like Devin Vassell we'll see if any of their like million young shooting guards can deliver in that respect so that decision so it seems pretty clear that the accelerator is not going to be pushed for this season and maybe if you get Scoot Henderson or Victor Wembanyama, that's enough. But when, you know, I and some of that is also when do you have cap space, when do you have all this flexibility, and San Antonio, like, they haven't really had to make that kind of a decision in such a long time because they've just been varying degrees of great, and the times that they were, you know, down, it was a one-year anomaly due to an injury. It wasn't a tactical decision. It was just where they were. And so we're at the beginning part of that. I don't, I think that's something that we'll talk about more in 23 or 24, but it is an awkward decision and it's another one of those too early too late each have real consequences yeah and i think there's also been kind of this perception talking to people this off season they're like does pop really want to tank which i think is an interesting question because or a, a strange question to me because my response is always does it ever seem like pop was truly obsessed with winning it hasn't to me in a long time i i think he's only obsessed with winning when he has a team that he knows can win yeah like those like those teams that face the heat and some of the other earlier spurs teams like it, on those ones you could see it i mean that was oh, you guys are better with years than i am the one that lost to the heat and then beat them the next year then yeah i thought he cared yeah yeah 14 they were definitely all in and so but at the same time um everything i've heard from out of san antonio which isn't much because it's the spurs but the word is like he's he's really excited about coaching the young guys like he just wants to coach 
and make players better. And I think I'm that that very much vibes with what I know of Popovich. That sounds like something that he would do, which is good because it eliminates a lot of the tension around trying to get on board a real tank job because you're just like, it doesn't matter if we win. We're just trying to get better and having that kind of be the approach and, and being like, OK, we tactically need to, to like it's time. Like, all right, Keldon's going to have a hamstring for the rest of the season. That's just what we're going to do. Um, you can make those kind of decisions a little bit cleaner when everybody's on the same page and nobody's worried about their job. That just makes it an easier kind of approach. Uh, by the way, Keldon Johnson, clutch client that they just extended. Should note that. Uh, but I think ultimately when we look at the Spurs team and, and you mentioned like, I don't think this is a, it's not gonna be a one year rebuild. It's not like 97, you know, where it's okay. If you just tank this year and you get Victor, you're good to go next year. But I do think that they'll develop. We'll probably look at the Spurs and they'll have a low record, a good enough record to be in contention for Wemanyama. But we'll also probably go much like the Thunder last year. Maybe we'll go, you know, they actually have some pretty good talent. Like There's some guys on that squad. And I think we'll probably say that at the end of this year. I expect this to be what I would describe as uh, a respectable tank job. Yeah, luckily, I think in their position, they may not need the Keldon Johnson hamstring injury to stretch yeah. them out to, to drop them. Like, I think th- this team's going to be bad, bad. And and not for lack of supplementary talent. Like I, I'm pretty high on guys like Devin Vassell, I think relative relative to their roles and what they could be. Like I'm optimistic about those kinds of players on this roster, but they just don't have anyone who's kind of stirring things for them now, the way DeJounte did. And so I think they're they're gonna be in a good place in that regard where they can develop some of these guys. They're gonna get high quality reps for some of these, you know, secondary ball handler types or the Trey Joneses of this kind of roster. You know, hopefully we see a little bit more of Josh Primo and see how he can you know, more fully develop with a little bit more time. But uh, but they're going to be bad regardless. And so hopefully that does hit the sweet spot where they can get the draft equity they need. They can develop the way they need. Pop can you know have whatever fulfilling ride off into you know a sunset of, of whatever distance he is from that sunset at this at this point, uh, however many years he wants to coach. But, you know, I think they can thread that needle relative to where they are right now. The the funny thing, as Rob was explaining, and I fully agree with that, of like not having not having that table setter for San Antonio and how that's going to hurt their offense, and, and we'll see what happens with their defense. I wonder how this Jakob Pertl situation resolves. Like, is he kind of too? Does he give them too much of a defensive identity to fully do it? We'll have to see with that. And also, he's you know in the last year of his contract. Is I see that parallel with the Houston Rockets, where I think we could see a lot of this year looking positive for them. We feel better about you know Jalen Green in year two and some of these other first and second year guys I mean they have seven first round picks over the last two years that will be that will be rostered for them this year and most of those seven will play significant minutes but that not having that table setter will make their offense worse and there could be some defensive problems in Houston this year even without Christian Wood there so I I wonder if we're going to see a similar limitation which is only which only really matters if the goal is to win basketball games right now though you do obviously have to find that player eventually yeah and look i'm excited about uh their rookie jeremy sohan i think that there's he's the guy that i i kind of listed when you were putting together the kind of guidelines for this is what players you think will break out or the rookie you're most excited about rather is is jeremy sohan i think i'm ex- excited about seeing him there's a lot of guys i think that on this roster that are going to be at least <laughs> put it this way they'll be interesting to watch even if they're not yeah. good so before we get to, the, we'll talk about the rookies in a second. I actually had real trouble with this of like the newcomer to this division that will that is best or that will help their team the most this year. Isn't it Christian Wood by I think default? It has to be. Yeah, I don't feel great about it, but I think it kind of. I think that's his zone. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, the, Matt, are you emotionally prepared for it to be JaVale McGee because he starts over Christian Wood? I guess. I, I, I guess. You know, I'll, I'll, very Jesse Pinkman, he can't keep getting away with it meme for me, <laughs> but maybe, um, you know, look, I think the newcomers are, are really tough to find in this division. There's just like, not a lot. I mean, honestly, like maybe the newcomer is Jabari Smith, right? Could be. Like maybe yeah. that's, maybe that's the, the one that we're really going to look at, even though as we talk about the Rockets, I have so many concerns about this team and especially about Jabari in particular, given his situation that he's in. Um, but yeah, it's tough. Like Memphis didn't bring in a lot of guys that are probably going to be in the, in main rotation. The Mavericks. Well, what if, what if the addition is Danny Green's leadership? You know, what if he's go. just really revving him just, up from the bench. Just, just amazing uh, podcasting really from Danny Green. So maybe that's <laughs> the, the key here is Danny Green's podcasting is the, the real new addition. Um, yeah. So it's like, we have these three teams and the Pelicans didn't necessarily add anybody. They added Zion back and that's it. So it's just, there's just no real, there was, there was so much less movement in this division than maybe you'd expect for a team with three playoff hopefuls. Yeah, and it just the lack of overall flexibility is a part of it and opportunities we talked about with Memphis before. And, you know, even if Jalen Brunson had stayed, Dallas wasn't going to add much other than Christian Wood, which that deal had already happened. And so the way I like to phrase the rookie part of this is it's not the rookie you think is going to be best because a very few are truly positive players. It's the it's the rookies and it doesn't have to be a single one, but the rookies that you are most excited to watch this year. I think for me, it is Jabari Smith Jr. And that's in part for the reason that Matt already alluded to the fact that it it is kind of complicated for him there and I want to see you know if the structure is going to be there to, to get him the ball in his spots which Houston's offense that really wasn't the case for a lot of its bigs last season uh, but even if it's not I'm really fascinated to see kind of where he is defensively how other teams deal with his shooting and plus just as someone who's not super initiated in in these draft classes before they come into the NBA in general it doesn't have to be complicated for me I am but a simple man I want to see high draft picks and how they fit in the NBA. Jabari Smith Jr. is very exciting to me as a prospect, even if I think some some parts of the fit have to be sorted out. Uh, but that's part of the fun. I, I kind of want to see how all that fits together for Houston, because I think if it does work, if there is an element of his game that clicks in right away, I don't think the Rockets are going to be very good this season, but I think they could be a candidate for like the biggest jump from 22-23 to 23-24. Like they could be on the route on the road to something pretty quickly if he's able to lock in. Yeah, I don't know how you can't be excited about Jabari. Just if you've watched him at all at Auburn, I, I the skill set is really great. I think the defensive stuff is very interesting. If they're able to find, if one of the guards makes a step that I I don't see happening, and they're able, actually able to get him the ball consistently, Jabari can absolutely fill it up. Like he, you know, let's just go ahead and use it. He's a bucket. Like he just really is a really great shooter and scorer. There's a lot to like and to enjoy about Jabari. The question of who will be like the best player on the Rockets in a couple of years, I think is more interesting than I think a lot of Rockets fans think, which they are all very much like, oh, it's Jalen. And I don't necessarily know if, if I'm there. Um, I mentioned Jeremy so- Sohan. I think I'm very excited about watching him just because of the athleticism. I'm I'm really excited about him. Tari Eason is another name that I think could be, he'll get minutes because the Rockets are still rebuilding. And so I think there's a chance there for him to, to really just be a monster uh, inside. And that I think is pretty exciting 
from a conceptual standpoint. Uh, an undrafted rookie is uh, Kenny Lofton Jr. Yeah, that's, that's he's gonna be fun. Yeah, I'm really excited for him with Memphis. That should be a blast uh, watching him just do work on the inside. And then here's a name that's kind of slipped outside of consideration. Now, I don't know what his role is. I don't know if he's gonna get minutes. But I love Dyson Daniels' game. He's a connector, and I think there's a, so much that he can do to help. I just don't know if if he's going to get minutes on a Pelicans team that is obviously competing for a high playoff spot. But if he's able to work his way in, I really love Dyson Daniels, and I'm, I'll be excited every time I get to see him actually get minutes on the court. Matt, well, I mean, while okay. while we're in honorable mentions mode, I do like we have to throw Jaden Hardy in here too, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Uh, sure. Just just as the the realest hooper to join this yes. division. Um, my question for him is not like, can he be good for a playoff and, and contending level team? But like, can he be Cam Thomas is kind of what my threshold is. Like, can he be a pure instinctive bucket getter in a way that is like fun to watch in the regular season that we have to figure out a lot about later? But you can kind of see the contours of how he could be a useful NBA player down the line. Yeah. Can, and can he finish around the basket? That would be that would be nice. I like that Matt brought up Sohan and Dyson Daniels because they're two of the top 10 play, two of the top 10 draftees that barely played in summer league and that you know Dice Daniels due to injury Sohan due to COVID and so I'm very excited to see them in person I watched film on Daniels didn't love it but definitely see the see the argument for him it's just going to be whether he can work out and I want to add in one more and that was somebody I really liked in summer league is Ty Ty Washington and Washington it's a story that we've seen before where talented player has weird like injury related stuff which leads to him being having a, like a worse statistical season having worse film than we anticipated and then you see them in summer league in their first year and you're like oh yeah remember they were a good prospect and I, I think that's kind of where I see things going with Washington I don't know that he's going to play a ton of minutes for this year's Rockets team I kind of hope he does and I mean so this was yeah he was like top 15 or something like that recruit in the country and I remember I had heard some stuff about him beforehand so I, I'm interested in what Ty can bring to the Rockets in part because that drink stirrer, that lead distributor, depending on the growth that Jalen Green has, that's the most important need that they need filled. Yeah, so I just finished like a deep dive on Houston, and I've I think I've kind of come out that they're going to be. I've kind of I've upgraded them to a certain degree. Uh, I've, they're going to be better than I thought they were initially. A lot of it, I think, when I do this analysis, is you start off and you're just like, oh god, they're so bad, and that makes you want to drop them down because they're like bad, 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 bad. But it's like okay, if you just start with yeah, okay, they're not going to be. This isn't going to be a 500 team, but are they going to be a tw- closer to 20 or are they going to be closer to 30? And where you wind up on this because this is important when I do it for win totals, and you're just the number for them is 23 and a half. So figuring out if they're closer to 28 gives you a five game differential or if they're closer to 20, that's a really key dif- difference in, in the analysis. And there's a lot of things that I actually surprisingly liked about Houston. But you mentioned the guard stuff. I don't, you know, KPJ actually grades out a little bit better passing wise than I would have thought. But finding chemistry is difficult. And maybe this is the the answer is just that Jabari makes it very easy for Kevin Porter Jr. and Jalen Green to distribute because he'll be able to set, you know, screens and have gravity and roll to good spots that they understand. They just that combination works. But their shot selection, their impulses, and broader than even the individual offensive talent, the thing that's so glaring when I watch Houston is the lack of offensive direction. They're just they there's just all 
all these possessions where I'm like, you guys have no idea what you're supposed to do here. You're just making this up as you go along and not in the fun way. And aren't we all, though? Aren't we all? But they're, they're the difference. And there are teams that this really you will notice about. Like the Suns were this way before Monty showed up. Like I would yeah. watch the Suns and they have all this talent. Why are they so terrible? And then you would watch their offense and be like, no one knows what they're supposed to be it's, doing right it's, now. It's a part of why my evaluation on Devin Booker changed so dramatically is that it's like, oh, they're actually doing stuff now. <laughs> yeah, they're just doing stuff. They have mechanisms. They have actions. They have structure. And the Rockets didn't. So I don't know. I don't know how much to, to assess what is Jalen Green and Kevin Porter Jr.'s ability to run an offense because I don't know how much offense they had to run. And maybe that was a conscious decision in an effort to get a top three pick. Maybe, maybe that was a conscious decision and now they'll implement stuff. Or maybe, you know, Silas had some ideas and they just didn't get it or whatever. I don't know. But I do know that I'm still really skeptical because if you talk to Rockets fans, the idea really, because KPJ was 99th percentile last season in spot up shooting, catch and shoot, any split that you took, Synergy Sports, Second Spectrum, NBA.com, whatever you want to do he was an elite shooter when he doesn't dribble the ball if you just like hey catch this ball and and please shoot it and Jalen was really good at at multiple scoring options as well and so there's like they are really good scorers but you need someone to run the offense and the idea is well Alperen Shangun is going to be the hub and he's going to be like the Demona Sabonis Nikola Jokic guy and I'm just here to tell you that after watching all of Alperen Shangun's stuff if he makes a leap to being good enough not to be as good as those guys but just good enough to do the job it will be an absolutely incredible leap year over year in player development from a turnover passing strength ball control awareness standpoint it will be an amazing leap if he's able to become the hub of any offense in the nba that was 99th percentile in spot shooting for kevin porter jr yes i mean that's yeah. what, what percentile self-awareness though do you think 14th sounds about right yeah i, mean, I think that's about right there I mean, was to, to i will say point, there, there is oh go ahead no you got there's absolutely that aimlessness you're talking about to houston's offense in general i wonder like to to your point about like is that a lack of direction is that a lack of structure is that like where is that coming from there's an individual quality to that stuff that definitely rings out for me where it's like when the how can you know what you're doing when you don't know who you are yet and i think the rockets have that in a couple of different ways where it's like there are the jalen green types who just don't know what they can fully become yet and are kind of pressing on the edges of that and trying to feel their way through and then there's the kevin porter jr types who have a very clear idea of who they think they are and that is just woefully miscast to what they need to be yeah it's it's a lot to i mean in houston I, I love and i hadn't thought of the parallel with the suns and i'm i'm gonna have that in my head for probably three years now so i appreciate that matt and the <laughs> the idea that like the 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 pieces can be jumbled on the board and then you just need the right thing whether that's a coach or it could just be having the right motivation to win or different players to to get all of it there and like it's a parallel with the rockets and the spurs i brought this up a little earlier it's like i think there's a lot of talent there it's just how do you harness it and and that can take time and that's not the worst thing in the world you know like underperforming relative to your talent level when you are a young team can actually be a good thing as long as it doesn't get your guys in bad habits and create you know like lacks of accountability and all these other kind of problems that can happen with bad teams if you can get through that then you'll probably be okay um so we can kind of shift gears a little bit to the regular season preview we can start here with matt because i know you do a lot with win totals you can use whatever criteria you want can be regular season wins if you want can be best team whatever the hell you want to do rank these south 
Southwest Division teams one to five. Okay, I think you know, Danny, you and I always do tiers. Uh, I have Dallas and New Orleans on the same tier. I have Dallas slightly ahead. I think there's. Wait, do, you know, do, are you saying you have both? Are, are they your top two, or do you have them? Are yes. they? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not kidding when I think the Memphis Grizzlies take a step back this year. Um, So I have Dallas and New Orleans on a top tier, Dallas slightly ahead. And again, this isn't about necessarily taking a step forward. It's about the Pelicans would have to take such a massive step forward to become like a 55 win team. It's more about like which of these teams can get the 47 ish, right? 47, 48, that kind of range to win a division, maybe 45 to win the division. I think these are all flawed teams. New Orleans at its ideal version may be the best team in the division, which is why I have to include them there. Uh, but I still have Dallas slightly ahead. I'm expecting an MVP season from Luka. Um, I have optimism about the Christian Wood situation. I'm willing to give the defense a year over year. Like I'm not expecting it to just the bottom to fall out and for them to completely collapse. So I'm putting Dallas and New Orleans in that top tier. I'm putting Memphis in a, in a tier on its own in the second. And the reason for that is... I worry about the Anthony Melton thing. If Tyus Jones sprains an ankle, what's the backup point guard situation look like? Teams started. The biggest problem is that Jaw had his first long. The biggest problem is Jaron Jackson's injury. The second biggest and biggest problem is that teams had their first really long look at the Grizzlies and what in a playoff environment, what strategies worked. Teams are loath to use those in the regular season, but if you're in a spot where like, we really need to get this win, you saw it last year with Houston, with Utah actually, where teams if they were like they were on a long losing streak and they wanted to try and get a win versus Utah, they'd be like, screw it, halftime, let's switch everything, let's just switch everything, and then the Jazz would collapse. Having those type of things is a problem. Jaw doesn't have a pull up jumper. This is a weird thing, but it's true. He doesn't use a pull up jumper. He only uses a jump stop floater. And once you start to get used to how to guard that a little bit more, and once that's on the scouting report, I think we're gonna see a little bit of a of a stagnation from jaws numbers he'll still be spectacular he's jaw morant but also the athleticism comes with a big injury risk and if jaw misses time i don't have the faith that they're going to do what they did last year and just rack up this great winning percentage when jaw was not on the floor especially if it comes early in the season when jaron is not available um a lot of optimism coming out of memphis that jaron's injury is going to be on the shorter side of four to six months rather than the longer side however if they're wrong or if his conditioning isn't ready or whatever that's january that's half the season things get kind of tough there. There's all these indications for me that I just as much fun as Memphis was last year. They were one of the worst teams in both half court and half court offense and half court defense. They relied so much on transition. Those teams typically tend to see some regression. So I'm dropping Memphis down. Um, I think Houston solidly is in that third tier. They're going to be the fourth best team in in this division. I think that they want to win a little bit versus the Spurs, who I think want to win not at all. I think that they have enough talent for them to get to 25 plus ish. Maybe if things go right. Um, and then San Antonio at the bottom, because I think San Antonio, an uh, important thing to remember is that with a much better team in 1997 versus what I would consider to be a worse field, San Antonio was able to tank hard enough to just get 20 wins. Greg Popovich is elite at coaching everything, including how to lose. So I think San Antonio <laughs> will be the fifth best team in the division. Uh, the more we go through this, the more I feel like Memphis might be the most difficult team to predict in terms of win total. For sure. Maybe in the entire Western Conference, maybe in the entire league, uh, because I don't know how to parse the, the Grizzlies versus Pelicans part of this either. And some of it is, and maybe this is just straight up anchoring bias on my part, I'm just looking at a 20-win discrepancy less and feeling like, okay, between the injury to Jaron Jackson Jr., between some regression overall for the Grizzlies, between Zion getting back, the additions that they made midseason playing out over the course of a full season, is that st- is that 20 wins worth mm-hmm. 
of movement. I can't quite get there, but I think well, they're going to be very close. So to me, it's a little bit more of a Dallas, Memphis, New Orleans, all in the same tier for me. Yeah, that's so Rob, it's funny, you, you ended up in about the same place that I am. But one thing to kind of mention in that part of the story, and I'm, I'm sure Matt knows this as well, is how New Orleans started last season. And it was, remember, it, Brandon Ingram was out and they went, was it 1-11? in 1-12 um, to start last yeah. season. And then yeah. they got back their players and they were totally respectable. So when Ingram was on the floor last year, clean the glass version of it, the Pelicans had a plus 3.3 net rating. Now that is still significantly worse than what Memphis had last year. But New Orleans was also playing without somebody that we hope will be their best player. So I, I think yeah. that they can get in the mix. They also figured a lot out over the course of last year. And while I firmly agree with the idea that the whole sample matters, you don't just say they had a great second half of the year. That's all that matters. They're they're just that team forever moving forward. I, I don't I don't agree with that. But especially with playing the right guys, figuring a lot of things out defensively, and you know, getting CJ McCollum who wasn't there at the start of the year, the the Pelicans have a lot to figure out, but they also have a lot of talent. And so yeah, I'm I'm gonna go Mavs one, Grizzlies two, but same tier teensy teensy teardrop before the Pels I might feel dumb about it I, I'm not tethered as, as much to the 20 game discrepancy as much as I am like I still need to figure out exactly where like where all these Pelicans piece are going to fit together because you add somebody as great as Zion it's going to be an adjustment for everybody else and but they are really deep and that that helps it for me and then I'm going to I'm going to agree with Matt I think that the Spurs are the more talented team right now but I also think they care less about winning right now so I would say the Spurs are the fourth most talented team but they are going to win the fewest game i think that makes sense uh, uh yeah the rockets the rockets uh, yeah they're they're going to make positive steps forward and just enough of them to win more than the spurs but i mean again i i'm going to reiterate the spurs are going to be very bad let, let us all <laughs> prepare for for that outcome yeah i mean the rockets won 20 games last year i th- typically teams don't have a ton of stomach for doing that twice in a row you know if, if you can you know if you can get the right player then that'd be great well but... <laughs> and if you're steven silas you're doing everything possible possible to try and eke out those wins because otherwise your job's probably on the line very so. true yeah i mean the, the the synchronicity between stone and silas we'll have to find out and i mean you could, could get into all that the second to last question and this is a really complicated one with this division how many teams make the playoffs not the play in the playoffs I like that if you ask me, like, how many of these teams are, are going to make the playoffs, my immediate answer is three before I think about the fact that, the, oh, yeah, there's two other divisions that also get to put in teams <laughs> because, you know, look, like, uh, if you ask me about playoff teams right off the bat, and my answers are, all right, the Suns are going to make it, the Clippers are going to make it, the Warriors are going to make it, the Nuggets are going to make it, the Wolves are going to make it. That's five. That's five, right? Um, so if those five teams are going to make it, and I do, we've only got one more guaranteed spot and then two play-in spots. Um, I, I will I say think, this is the fu- this is the eight teams making it in. So it doesn't it doesn't matter mm-hmm. if you make if you make it in via the play in. That's fine. It's just who will be the one through eight that play in the best of sevens. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, so I think probably we'll go. I'll, I'll say I'll say all three will make it because I do think that outside of the teams I just listed, I think that they're well the Lakers being the Lakers and lingering out there and Lakers them um, is a question mark. But I, I right now I'll say that I do think that Dallas, Memphis, and New Orleans are all better than the other options outside of those top five so i'll say those three make it and that's our field is that i honestly i wouldn't be surprised if it was six dallas seven memphis eight new orleans that wouldn't shock me i had new orleans above memphis i'm not like they're definitely gonna be better this is close 
right? Memphis could be one of those teams where I look at it and I go, you know what? They're primed for regression. They lost some guys. I'm going in. They're going to be worse than next than last year, and then they're just better. They're just better. That happens sometimes. Um, but as of right now, I think six Dallas, seven uh, Memphis, eight New Orleans is a pretty sound proposition for me. Man, it's tight though. Like I'm sure this is a recurring theme for you, Danny, in doing these previews, especially with the West. But I'm I'm kind of inclined to pick two. Um, I, the problem is picking the two, but I'm just going to say in in total, it's going to be two of these teams. Yeah, you don't you don't have I, to identify I, the teams if you don't want to. I think my problem mostly is like the Lakers are just looming out there, yeah. and I mean I I, I don't want to totally write off the Trailblazers. Like I think they're going to have a voice in this on some yep. level, and if they Agreed. had a surprisingly good season, they could be in that mix. Agreed. And so I'm going to bet on. I mean, for one. Dallas and Memphis, if they get the wrong injury to the wrong guy, are just like free falling in the standings, I think. Um, and so and the Pelicans, I think, have shown a little bit more survivability. But but again, like they're not exactly the deepest team in the world either. And so like planning for the possibility of injury, planning for the fact that I think the Pelicans and the Grizzlies are maybe on the borderline as it is. I'm going to say that only two of these teams end up making it. But that in itself is just ridiculous. Like the those five locks or, ba- or kind of basically locks that you laid out Matt, in the west it just doesn't leave any room for error for any of these other teams and the other factor that made me queasy and why i'm gonna go with two over three even though i think this has three of the eight best teams is because nobody can step in like there there are times this happened um i was talking with jared weiss and jared dubin about the east and with the atlantic division it's like the idea that the team most likely to replace somebody who falls due to injury is another team in the Atlantic division. Whereas I think the Spurs and the Rockets will be firmly out of the playoff picture, which means that if one of these teams doesn't make it, it's going to be someone from another division. And point. I, I hope it's not, you know, I hope everybody stays healthy. I hope that everyone has great years and, and all of that. But as a practical consideration, we know at least one team, probably closer to three, like that are in playoff contention are going to be at least partially rocked by injury. And so that very well could be one of the teams in this division. And the Grizzlies handled that very well with Jaw last year, but as you brought up, you know, like that now especially it requires Tyce Jones being healthy. So the cascade effects of injuries there. The Pelicans are super deep, so they can handle some of it, but it's still a lot to navigate. And then with Dallas, I mean, becoming more heliocentric means you need that sun to be be there because otherwise it's going to be a real real challenge for them. And so I, I think that that's that's kind of how I'm playing it out. So they have three of the best eight, but if I have to choose, someone's going to have something happen, and I don't I don't want to predict who it's going to be i hope it's no one but that's where it goes last question and we could start with matt breakout players does not mean rising stars doesn't have to be that it's just players that we will talk about significantly differently from these five teams a year from now Keldon johnson is the first name on, on my list just because the so i did a big um, most improved player profile on on the buckets pod and there's all these delimine, uh, delimine, delineations that you can kind of look back at the history of the award and say, how many guys shot between X and Y and had usage between A and B and then made like a big jump? And then if you factor all those guys in, Keldon's one of those guys and his percentages profile that if he increases in usage, he's going to be really good. So I think Keldon Johnson is a guy that we'll probably talk about, especially early on in the season before the realities of the differentials between the teams kind of kick in in January, December and January. So he's a guy. Uh, Zaire Williams is another yep. name on my list where, look, you know, I, I mentioned all the things with Zaire, but a lot of that was not about talent. It was about, you know, why are you making this kid try and do this? And their answer is you're trying to make Zaire do that because you think that he could be that guy and you're get 
you're making him go through those gr- those growing pains. Um, a spectacular talent, incredible athleticism. You know, if he makes a big jump, then a lot of my Memphis is going to be worse predictions are going to take a hit. So Zaire, I think, has an opportunity to um, break out next season. He has the talent to do that. Trey Murphy is a guy that Pelicans fans really know, but was it, the minutes weren't there for him, and he was young. He was the most impressive rookie to me at Summer League last year in terms of how comfortable he looked on the court. I think he, with another year, he'll get more minutes, and around Zion, he'll have you know an opportunity to really show off how good of a shooter he is. So I like Trey Murphy quite a bit. And then one guy that I actually think goes under the radar that may we start to look at as, hey, this is because I, I was surprised that he resigned, that nobody came after him, that nobody was like, hey, don't resign. You know, we'd like to take a look at you uh, for for us. Is Jay Sean Tate? I think Jay Sean Tate's going to be a really good connector in this league. I like him on both ends of the floor. So I think Jay Sean Tate, if the Rockets are better, I think we're everyone's going to talk about Jabari and everyone's going to talk about Jalen Green um, and maybe Alpern Shingoon. But if, if they're successful to on even on the scale that they're talking about, that they're hoping to be 30 wins, 35 wins, then it's because Jay Sean Tate, I think, is the kind of connector that makes everybody better. And so he's another breakout candidate for me. I love a lot of those. I mean, Trey Murphy in particular, Zaire Williams, those are definitely guys on my list to watch as well. Uh, Dorian Finney-Smith would be an honorable mention for me, not in terms of his game breaking out, but his reputation catching up to where he is in the way that Matt talked about earlier. I think some people are still a little behind on, on just how impactful he is defensively, but for me, the pick, and look, these are famous last words. I believe in what happened between February and April last season, but I am I am on the Jalen Green bandwagon. I am Ooh. anxiously awaiting his next steps and kind of how, to see how he starts putting things together, but I think he could have if not in like the meaningful playoff games and and strict performance in that sense of, of this term but like I think he could have an Anthony Edwards like jump um, that's kind of what I'm like like does Jalen Green have that in him is what I'm looking forward to seeing not necessarily can he be your primary playmaker but like can he be the guy you really have to worry about and you really have to start scouting for and you really have to start taking seriously whether it's because the jumper is falling in a different way whether it's because he just has a different command of his dribble whatever that ends up being I'm in for whatever the next step for Jalen Green is I think I think Jalen Green, the Edwards comparison is an apt one where we'll see the con. I hope we see the contours of what he'll be when he's at his best. Like that Edwards, you know, he had a challenging first year, a lot of development. And then we saw it in the second year. I think it could be similar for Jalen Green. I, I mean, Matt had an, a wonderful, exhaustive list. I mean, I agree with I agree with damn near everything there. One, so two other guys I want to bring in. I'm trying to figure out who is going to get that shine for Memphis while Jaron Jackson's out, and I think it might be Brandon Clark. That it's just like he's not as good as Jaron Jackson Jr., but it's like okay, you can you can do something with him. I love Xavier Tillman, but I don't think he's going to get the opportunity. So I don't think it's going to be him. And then the last one, it's hilarious with this prompt to pick somebody who's turning 30 this season but when you bring Zion Williamson back in you need something different from the five and I think there are going to be some times when Larry Nance Jr. is the right five to close for the for the Pelicans or just not that he's better than 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 Valanciunas but that he just fits what they need a little bit better and Nance is a good player he's fallen due to injuries and just kind of where he's been the last couple years he's fallen off the radar a little bit and the oh yeah this is a very good basketball player would be a step up from where we are right now on him. 
Yeah, I think I, for him, for him, a lot of it is going to depend on um, Jose Alvarado's development. And what I mean by that is like you need a good guard to go with Nance. Some of the, I was I was looking at lineup combinations, and actually, like some of the combinations with Nance weren't great last year with Ingram and McCollum, which is a kind of interesting. It might be small span, sample and noise, but I think if Jose Alvarado is able to take a step forward, um, and uh, on top of Grand Theft Alvarado, then I think him and him and Nance could provide some really fun second unit, especially if you sprinkle sprinkle in some staggering. You could have some really fun stuff there with Nance and Alvarado. I hope Alvarado isn't like a this isn't like a one hit wonder thing for Me him. Too. I hope he's Me a too. real NBA yeah. player, uh, but it's it's tough for guys that small, you know, just historically, to, especially to my, be playmakers, to be meaningful playmakers. My, my dream for him is Jub Jub is Jose Juan Barea. That's my <laughs> well, and that's my I mean, it's, al- it's also the I mean, you brought up the like the the small guy. It's also that's why the growth in playmaking is so important. Guards that are point guard sized who can't who who don't run an offense at a high level. That's always you know it, it's a perilous place to be. But him being so awesome defensively changes that a little bit. But I mean. I mean, I think that's honestly like kind of a good way to end this. To end this, I mean, you, you the three of us are all fascinated with the Pelicans, and a part of that is they have. I don't have the exact number in my head. I mean, we haven't brought up Jackson Hayes basically at all in this podcast. Like nine or ten different guys that can contribute in different ways, and the the combinations of players for this team that Willie Green is going to have to navigate. And you, oh yeah, you have a playoff team last year, and you add in Zion Williamson, one of the most talented players to come into the league in the last half decade. I it, it the it's going to be a lot to figure out, but the the upside of doing so is is incredible. And I think there's still a lot to figure out, even from the the preceding period, right? Sure. Like we never really got a good feel of what Ingram and Zion were before all this started changing and happening and, and, and yeah. shifting shape. So it's like we need to settle those questions and these new questions yeah. and like see, this is Sun's first season, first full season in New Orleans. I mean, it's it's a they're going to be one of the best shows of the regular season. I think based on pure talent, based on just a really charismatic team and playing style in general, and also just like the what is. Zion Williamson factor that looms over not just this team but the entire division maybe the entire conference maybe the future of the league like this is this is big stuff and uh, the fact that the Pelicans are out here on that kind of stage like on the brink of something potentially really meaningful I think is a really cool development before Zion's uh, injuries, latest round of injuries, there was a little bit of tension late in games where Ingram would want to take over and it wouldn't go great. Or he would not necessarily yeah. be just like wanting to give the ball. Like, Ingram wants to be the guy. And for the last two years on a team that made the playoffs last year, he was. He was most improved player two years ago and then was the guy on this team. All-star. So I'm going to be very curious to see how Ingram reacts to, um, yeah, but see, we have the the Zion guy it's kind of important I want to see how he reacts to that and if there's tension and trying to figure out like navigating those waters especially for a coach in Willie Green that you know this is his first time as a second year as a head coach and first time dealing with this that kind of situation will be interesting maybe it'll be seamless maybe they'll be all be on the same page but it's something that I want to I want to watch the dynamic and see how that plays out um while I'm also obviously just watching Herb Jones just following him wherever he is on the court because he's Herb Jones well there's there's no tension here on this podcast Matt you are that guy you are our guy. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you guys all for taking the time. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Loved it. it was awesome. 
Thanks again to Rob Mahoney and Matt Moore for taking the time to come on. You can read Rob's excellent work at The Ringer, and you can, of course, also listen to The Ringer NBA Show, where he is a frequent part, and you can follow Rob on Twitter at Rob Mahoney, R-O-B-M-A-H-O-N-E-Y. And with Matt Moore, he is at the Action Network. You can also listen to the various podcasts that he appears on, including the Action Network stuff, and often Locked on NBA and Locked on Nuggets, and Real GM Radio a fair amount as well. Hopefully, we will continue the tiers into the season. I hope and expect that we will. And you can, of course, if you don't somehow already, follow him on Twitter at HP Basketball. If you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can download every episode and subscribe using the podcast player of your choosing. That can be Spotify, that can be Apple Podcasts, really wherever. Really do appreciate that. And the show's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. So it helps you get the show, helps us with our numbers and all that fun stuff. And then you can also help other people find the show. And that's through leaving a rating and review in the aforementioned podcast player of your choice or by telling other people about the show. Word of mouth can be very important for Real GM Radio and everything else. But the single most important thing for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. For us, that is betonline.ag. Use that CLNS50 promo code to tell them you came from us, but more importantly to you, to get a 100% welcome bonus on your first deposit, which is truly awesome. So you can do that. You can also check out my other work, Dunked On and Dunktown Prime are still going strong. I'm not on it as much right now because Nate is doing the excellent breakdowns with a team-specific expert, but if big news happens, we go through, and then we're also doing Spotify Live. Other than a hiatus the current week, we will be doing that pretty much every week that we can moving forward, and also those are released, as I understand it, they're released between 24 and 48 hours after as a podcast, but exclusively on Spotify because we're doing it on Spotify Live. So you can check that out there. It's always a real fun conversation and written work at The Athletic. Hope to have some stuff out soon. I'm still on vacation, so not producing as much content for right now, but that that should change in the next week or so. And then who knows, maybe there will be some announcements in the near future. We'll, we'll, we'll have to see on all of that fun stuff. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, DanielRueMBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. And longtime listeners of the show will know, and this is just honestly pretty close to pure coincidence, that I've been doing these Southwest Division capsules for a long time, and one of the frequent guests on them is my friend Jonathan Sharks, now of The Ringer, formerly of Real GM. And, you know, I've been, of course, for those of you who, who know his work, know that he had been dealing with health challenges for a while now, and I had asked him if he wanted to come on, and he said he wasn't, you know, he said he wasn't doing well, and of course, that was totally fine and had the news over the last week that he has passed away, which is just devastating for, most importantly, of course, his family and for the basketball media community. And of course, for all those who listened and read read his excellent work. And I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about the Jonathan that I knew because I, I knew him for, for basically a decade. And Jonathan and I first crossed paths um, when his work started getting picked up by Real GM. And I was really excited to have him as a colleague because he approached basketball, and I would honestly say analysis more broadly in a different way than so many of the other people out there at the time. And I would argue that that continued throughout the time that I that I knew him. And there, then there was a stretch where Jonathan, Shams Trani, and I were all making our way at Real GM, grinding and finding our niche while operating in different parts of the country and somewhat different parts of the same small world. And Jonathan Shams' well-much-deserved success has been some of the happiest moments that I've had in this business because I know how hard they work and I knew how much they deserved it. And while we started interacting fairly quickly at Real GM, including, of course, John Cummings, 
streaming on Real GM Radio when he wanted. What stuck out to me most then, and especially once we started hanging out in person, was Jonathan's uncommon combination of passion and confidence. He always knew, unlike so many people around our age, what was most important to him in this world, and that was his family and his faith, with basketball and everything else very present but comfortably behind on that list for him. And I always admired how comfortable he was keeping social media at arm's length, and one of the few things that he and I never discussed was how that informed and affected my own approach to social media, especially in recent years. But still, more than anything, what I'll, what I remember, what I'll appreciate most is Jonathan's enthusiasm. Even over audio-only Skype, you could hear the smile on his face when he talked about his wife, Melissa, and becoming a father to Jackson. That passion extended to those parts of his friends' lives, including me. And he was so thrilled last summer that when we did this Division Capsule podcast, Rob Mahoney and, and I were, right. it was right before both of our, our weddings, and he was so excited about that and was really, especially now, but it was so thrilled to see him at Summer League. And we had a really good conversation. And I'll never forget him taking a beat during that. And we're just talking about our families. And he just he just turns to me and smiles and said, man, isn't this the best with a huge smile. And you think about all the physical challenges that he was going through. And so far beyond his excellent work, that's the Jonathan Sharks that I remember and want to convey to all of you. Man who knew what was most important to him in this world made that a reality and truly took delight out of the positives for himself and others. I end every Real GM Radio with my grandfather's motto, to make it a great day. And Jonathan lived that so thoroughly during his years on Earth. It was a thrill to have him as a colleague and as a voice in basketball media, but far more of a pleasure to know him as a man, as a friend, and I will miss him dearly. So, Thank you all so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.